Um, yes, good morning, everybody. Uh, as we continue our studies in Luke's Gospel today, we come to the well-known miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And that comes in Luke chapter 9, verses 10 to 20. If you have a Bible with you, please turn there right away. If not, then don't worry, the words will come up on the screen. If you were here last week, which I wasn't, but I listened to the podcast, you will remember the ministry model that Jesse uh, outlined in his talk. It was the triangular cycle, if such a thing exists, between vision casting, task, and community. And this truly is a cycle, but we draw it as a triangle because, as every good leader knows, you have to make an extra effort to turn the corners from one phase into the next. I've seen this work in all kinds of different teams, in the law, in police, in the church. Every team that I've been part of has really stood or fallen on its ability to follow this pattern. So when KV people speak of the holy triangle of doom, that is a joke, um, that is the diagram that we're referring to. I don't think you'll find it in your Bible, but it does, does seem to me to be a biblical pattern. Uh, not just one that's culled from the world of business. And as I hope to show this morning, I think we, we can track it in Jesus' ministry and his own leadership. In today's reading, we meet Jesus and the Twelve after he sent them out to preach and minister in his own power and authority. And we read in verse 6 how they'd gone throughout the villages around Capernaum, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. as a brand new thing in their experience. Now that's exciting work, but it's also very tiring. And after this season of task, Jesus turns the corner with them into the community phase. Community is that part of life where we compare notes, tell our glory stories, lick our wounds, and generally regather our strength for whatever comes next. And that's exactly what we find them at in Luke 9, verse 10. Let's read together. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. But when the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who needed healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and to get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we're to go and buy food for all these people for there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, make them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and made them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said, a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. Now, it happened that as he was praying alone, his disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. At this 
time of year when the church sort of regathers after our various summer breaks, it does no harm at all to speak about our shared values and the way we see life in the kingdom. It reminds old-timers like myself what church is for and that we still want to be part of it, and it helps newcomers to work out whether or not this is a church they could call home. As John Wimber always used to be telling church leaders, you have to keep displaying the sign on the front of the bus. If people don't know where you're going, how do they know if they want to get on? In preparing to speak on this passage, I asked myself the usual preacher's question, which is, what is God saying to this people through this passage at this time? And I wasn't altogether surprised to see that the passage just seemed to fall neatly into three subjects, each of which speaks, I think, volumes of the kind of church that we want to be. Each of these headings is just one word, so if you're taking notes, they might as well form our title. Community, compassion, and connection. Number one, community, verses 10 and 11. What we're witnessing in verse 10 is a deliberate regathering of a team that's been working hard. The world of work nowadays, as most of you have experienced, quite rightly values teams. So with varying degrees of success, it's thrown up a variety of what are generally called team-building exercises. I can see the shudder of fear running through <laughs> you, even as I mention it. In my experience, these are more or less embarrassing and distressing, as, <laughs> as people who are our colleagues and not friends are forced into bizarre situations which they'd never meet in the world of work. The team that actually enjoys these exercises probably doesn't need them. <laughs> Former girl guides and outdoorsy types generally often show unexpected leadership on these things. But those of us who've never constructed a bridge over a swamp or built and raced a river raft before it just cringe in the background trying not to get noticed. If you want a good chuckle at team-building exercises, I thoroughly recommend a song by Mark Knopfler called My Bacon Roll. It's a cracker, but I digress. My point, I suppose, is that church can sometimes feel a little bit like one of those team-building exercises. The extroverts thrive, and the introverts survive. But the fact is that Jesus calls us together as all different kinds of person to make up his church. And he does that because he loves us all, because he loves diversity, and because different people are differently gifted, and we need the full set. One thing you may find strange if you're not used to vineyard churches is our insistence, as Lucy mentioned a minute ago, on social gatherings and eating together. For myself, before I came to vineyard, I had quite a well-developed Sunday persona, which was quiet words, understanding looks, and a big black Bible. You know the type. Home group socials seemed like a complete waste of time to me. We could be studying the word. But what I discovered about myself, to my shame, was that my attitude had more to do with where I was comfortable than it did with true spirituality. And in those social gatherings, I got to see people, including myself, outside of their Sunday best behavior. Once we get real with each other, we can start to become more real with God as well. So here is Jesus taking his team away from their overtly spiritual task to a place where they can simply relax and get over themselves a bit. True friendship punctures pomposity. 
And as we read in the other gospel accounts, these 12 were absolutely buzzing at that time with all that they'd seen and done. So a period of banter and relaxation and general gentle leg pulling was probably exactly what they needed. One of the best things about pub church, by the way, every Friday lunchtime, is its ability to provide a taste of community in our task-driven lives. I commend it to you. And if you students have got lectures or seminars on a Friday afternoon, tell your tutors it's a cruel and unusual punishment. Nobody should work on a Friday afternoon. <laughs> as I read verse 11, as I read verse 11 a moment ago, you might have noticed that I, I reinserted a word, but. I don't know why the ESV cut it out. It's clearly there in the Greek, and I think it's important. Jesus' intention was to take the team out of the hurly-burly and get them some R&R. But all too soon, those pesky crowds found out where they were and started turning up. And that's why, for me, Jesus' response is so remarkable. He didn't say to them, uh, sorry, but you'll have to come back another time. We're on retreat at the moment. And he didn't say to the 12, oh, no, they found us. Never mind, let's go and sort them out. No, the grammar is quite specific. It is not they who welcomed the crowd. It is he who welcomed them, spoke to them of the kingdom, and healed any who needed it. That's 5,000 men, plus probably families as well. He left the team to rest and took the burden on himself. And to my mind, that isn't just excellent leadership. It also speaks of someone who had deep resources of strength and power. In fact, if he didn't, it wouldn't be good leadership at all. It would be insanity. So what was his secret? I think we're going to get a clue in verse 18, but we'll come to that. For now, I just want us to notice how Jesus valued community. You know, this community phase that we're talking about in the Holy Triangle of Doom after an intense period of task. Task always depicted as the uphill slope, community, a pleasant downhill phase. Allowing the 12 to step back from their amazing recent advance in ministry wasn't a retrograde step, as it might appear. It was actually part of their development, because it would empower the next phases of vision and task. Like Jesus, we're a church that values community. Number two, compassion. We're not actually told how long the crowds took to find them. There might have been a refreshing day or two uh, with Jesus before the uh, hordes showed up. But once they did, verse 12 indicates to us that Jesus' time of preaching and healing all took place in a single day. And as that day wore on, and on, and on, and wear away, indeed, it says in my Bible. I can only imagine the guys coming up to him with somewhat mixed motives. On the face of what they say, they're concerned for the crowds. But I can't help suspecting that they were just hungry and wanting to get back to their precious downtime with Jesus. And if that's right, in his somewhat abrupt response in verse 13, it might have a little bit of an edge to it. You give them something to eat, Still reading between the lines, always a dodgy business, I think I detect a bit of a note of sarcasm in their response too. Uh, well, we've only got a few fish sandwiches and there's thousands of them. 
I doubt we could, even if we could, we could afford it, I doubt we could carry such a big picnic back from Tesco's, however great the meal deal is. So be that as it may, I notice that Jesus' response is not an argument and it's not an explanation. It's a command. I think he often answers our questionings, not with some slapdown or explanation of what he's up to, but with an instruction as to what we are to do next. And these disciples have been with him long enough to know that the best course of action is always simply to do as he says. I think it was Oswald Chambers who said, if you can no longer hear the voice of God directing your steps, then go back and meet him at the place where you last disobeyed him. In verses 15 to 17, the miracle happens, and they pick up 12 baskets full of leftovers from a meal that would have fitted quite easily into one. On Radio 4's Woman's Hour, of which I'm a great fan, last week there was a piece on a social media phenomenon called Girl Math. Anyone come across Girl Math? No, you're all behind the times, see? You've got to get with it like me. Well, not, not being a complete devotee of Tick Chat or InstaTalk, I, I, I didn't really know what it was about, but it did sound quite fun. But what we see here is even more fun. This is not just girl math, this is kingdom maths. So, no, so we have two in, in the Britain. So two maths. Or, or is it three? I don't, I don't know. Anyway, it's more than one. We, we have, this is kingdom maths. And the maths gets even better when you compare the feeding of the 4,000 with this feeding of the 5,000, as Jesus himself does in Mark 8, 19 to 21. Can we have that up on the screen? He says, when I broke the five loaves, get the, get the maths, for 5,000, how many baskets of broken pieces did you take up? And they said, 12. And the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces? And they said, seven. And he said to them, do you still not understand? Don't you get it? Personally, I've been trying to understand for about half a century. I'm still not sure I do. But here is my best stab at it. In kingdom maths, it doesn't matter how great the need is, and it doesn't matter how small our resource is. God has enough and more. So kingdom maths goes, our tiny resource plus obedience to Jesus equals more than enough. Now you may be wondering why I've placed this section under the title of compassion. And the answer is not just because in the vineyard we like to call our ministry to those who are in need, compassion ministries, as Lucy just did. Oh, compassion boss, by the way, in case you didn't know that. It's not just that. It's because compassion is such a strong personality trait in Jesus. We're often actually told that he had compassion on so-and-so and healed him, or he had compassion on the crowds because they were uh, like sheep without a shepherd, etc., etc. So I believe it's compassion that causes him to feed these hungry people, not some coldly calculating desire to display the glory of God or to teach the Twelve a lesson. There's a lesson in there, all right, but it comes as the byproduct of a miracle of compassion and hospitality. In the vineyard, we're fond of saying the best things of the kingdom are caught, not taught. 
And here, Jesus teaches a lesson just by being who he is in front of the disciples. And it seems to me there's a compassion contrast here between the disciples on one hand and Jesus on the other. Their somewhat threadbare compassion for the crowd is at best limited to sending them away to find food and lodging. But the compassion of Jesus is more than enough. The crowds have come to the middle of nowhere to be with him, and so they become, as it were, his guests. The point is that if we follow Jesus, he's going to take care of our needs. And I can testify to the fact that he does. Exactly as his heavenly father had compassion on the nation of Israel during the Exodus and gave them bread to eat from heaven, so the son, Jesus, will feed these hungry masses in that bit of desert. Now, Lucy can tell you how many times when she hasn't known where the food will come from, her storehouse, somehow there's just always enough and a little bit more. And we're grateful to all of you who bring it. We're grateful to the other churches, to donor organizations like Morrison's. But we're also indebted to the generosity of the many in St. Andrews who don't know Jesus from a poke in the eye, but whose hearts are touched by the need of others. I don't, don't believe compassion like that ever goes unrewarded. We're a church that values community, but we're also a church that values compassion for those who aren't yet part of our community. A compassion that puts its hand in its pocket and makes a difference. Number three, connection. This is uh, verses 18 to 20. I said earlier on that when we got to uh, verse 18, we'd see part of the reason why Jesus had resources that others couldn't access. And it comes in this wonderful paradoxical sentence. We well might ask how Jesus was praying alone when the disciples were with him. If the disciples, if you pray, well, I think the answer might be simpler than it looks. They were with him, but he alone was praying. It's not actually that unusual when you think of it. Um, Most of us have been in a room where we we were the only person praying. What strikes me as rather disappointing, however, is that here is Jesus with the team who've just done wonders in his name. They're united in a common cause like no other, yet Jesus is the only one praying. Our church strapline, which Carol and I shamelessly stole from a reconciliation ministry at Coventry Cathedral, is helping people make connections with God. Well, Jesus' connection with God is extraordinary. The 12 realized that they plugged into the same thing. Uh, when they went out healing and expelling evil spirits. But they hadn't yet learned to stay connected in the downtime, like Jesus did. Anyone who's ever had internet problems, as we have for months, knows how important it is to be properly connected. How's your connection with God? And what can we do to help improve it? It seems likely from the text that Jesus' Jesus' sudden question to the disciples springs directly from this connection with God in prayer, because he moves quite seamlessly between prayer and human conversation. In vineyard gatherings, as as, uh, Lucy was saying earlier on, we were seeking a real meeting with each other and a real meeting with God. Jesus seems to have that down. 
to the point where there wasn't a clunky gear change like I have to make between one and the other. Something comes up in conversation with God, he makes it a conversation with the disciples. And then comes the revelation, you are the Christ of God. Well, that's not a bad deduction, is it? In the previous chapter, they saw Jesus calm a storm, overcome an army of demons, raise the dead. Then in this chapter, they went out in obedience to his command and found they could do the same sort of stuff just because he told them to. And now they've just seen him feed a multitude in a deserted spot just like the Israelites in the wilderness. Well, who does that but God alone? Only his Messiah. Christology denotes an entire field of theological study, and I don't know anything about it. But it's worth attempting a rough and ready definition of the English words Christ and Messiah, just so that we can see the full significance of Peter's answer, you are the Christ of God. Both words mean the same thing and refer to the same person, one in the Old Testament Hebrew, one in the New Testament Greek. In each case, the word itself simply means anointed, someone who's had ceremonial oil placed upon them. But with the prefix the, as in the Christ, the Messiah, it comes to mean a very specific anointed one. And prefixed with the name of Jesus, it suddenly clicks into focus. The main figures in Jewish tradition who were anointed were the high priests and the kings. But to the Jewish mind, the Messiah, the anointed one, was expected to appear as a unique figure in history, bearing characteristics of both high priest and king. When he appeared, he would make God's people righteous, he would rescue them from their enemies, he would punish the wicked, and establish an eternal blessing, a uh, kingdom of blessing and peace. At different times in history, different characteristics became more prominent according to Israel's circumstances. So the Christ can be a hard figure to pin down and define precisely in the Old Testament. But in every age, it was confidently expected that this great saviour would be obvious to all when he appeared. So perhaps a precise definition wasn't necessary. And it's interesting to note that in his own day, the man Jesus was also hard to define. From Herod back in verse 7 to the common people in verse 19, everyone was confused about who he was. But it was obvious he couldn't just be the carpenter's son from uncivilized Nazareth. People's best guess was that he must be one of the great dead heroes of Israel come back to life, which is interesting in itself. So Jesus was remarkable. Jesus was impossible. He must be some kind of superhero. But Peter, speaking for the Twelve, shows that they'd worked out who he really was, the Christ of God. And logically, that brings us back to connection again. Because even the most learned and the most holy people of the day were confused about who Jesus was and what was his significance. But these largely uneducated Twelve whose lives were most closely connected with Jesus, weren't in any doubt at all. Remember back in chapter 8, verse 10, how the parable of the sower was explained to the disciples, not to the crowds. Revelation is granted 
not to people with strings of letters after their names or titles before them, but to ordinary people who make the effort to get connected with Jesus. People who simply stay connected with him, whatever life throws at them. As Jesus famously said, in this world, you will have trouble. But don't worry, I have overcome the world. It is those who stay connected with Jesus who will overcome. We're a church that believes in community and compassion, but I think first and foremost, we're a church that believes in that connection with God. Why don't we connect with God right now as we stand together and I'll pray. Lord, come by your Holy Spirit and fill us now. Lord, some of us want to receive you like thirsty ground receives rain. Some of us want to receive your forgiveness. Some of us want to receive your healing. We've seen in today's passage what you're like. That you are a Lord who has compassion on people and heals them. So come and move among us in your power by your spirit right now, Lord. I'd like to invite you to come forward if you want like some prayer for anything, whatever you need. And uh, people who are members of home groups will come and, uh, and pray for you and administer the Holy Spirit to your life. Um, Jesus is here. He's here to do good, as he always does. He's not going to hurt you. So just come when you're ready. And if you want to make a, a, your first ever connection with Jesus today, now is a great time to do it as well. So, But whatever you need, whether it's physical healing or... Um, some emotional healing or anything like that or if it's something that I've said in the talk or that struck you in the uh, worship time, just come and we'll pray for you.